All right, hey, welcome to the Salt Company Madison podcast. Um, this is a different recording of the message that was initially preached on February 2nd, 2023 out of our unexpected series. That audio uh, went bye-bye. So here we are. We are gonna hop right into the text. Luke chapter five, verses 27 through 32. I do hope this is finding you well. Um, now, something that we do every... February to honor the cultural moment of Black History Month is tell some stories of black men and women who followed Jesus and the impact that they made. So we are going to get into the message of Luke 5, but we are also going to honor the fact that when we did this live on the 2nd, we also told the story of Betsy Stockton. Now, Betsy Stockton was the first single female missionary in the modern missions era. She was born in Princeton, New Jersey in 1798 into the wickedness of chattel slavery. She was born as a slave to Ashabel Green, who was the president of Princeton University at the time, given permission to attend class in the evening. And at 17 years old in 1815, revival broke out on Princeton's campus and Betsy became a Christian. Now, shortly after that, Ashabel Green also started following Jesus, became a part of the movement and uh, granted Betsy her freedom. This freedom from sin and from slavery sparked by the gospel had an indescribable impact on Betsy's life. Her entire life quite literally changed because of the work of the gospel of Christ, both vertically in her salvation and horizontally in her liberation. Now, she felt God's conviction and calling to take that same good news of Jesus to those who hadn't heard of him. This growing conviction shaped her prayers and eventually the rest of her life. Betsy longed to go to Africa to share the gospel, but an opportunity to go to Hawaii through the American Board of Commissions for Foreign Missions, long name, uh, came up. Now, most of the trip was covered by the board, but she also saved sacrificially and raised funds to be able to go. And in 1823, she was sent by the missionary team that she was a part of and arrived on the island of Maui. Now, she convinced the team leader to give her permission to create a school for the local people of the islands. And over the next several years, she would impact the lives of 8,000 native Hawaiians uh, by bringing the gift of education to them and teaching the gospel to them. Now, that this all happened uh, in the early 1820s, but in 1825, Betsy and her team actually had to return home due to the sickness of one of their teammates. But Betsy did not see her work as finished. She returned to teaching. She started a school for small children in Philadelphia and then traveled to Grape Island, Canada, where she established a school for Native American children as well. Along with her education work, she also helped to establish the first African-American Presbyterian church in Princeton in 1848, which is known today as Withers. Spoon Presbyterian Church. Now, she may have been born into slavery, but she emerged as a free woman who was a religious and academic giant, remembered by many as the gentle pioneer. It's recorded that Betsy believed with all her heart that it's the sacred duty of Christians to offer themselves in humble obedience to God's call to carry out his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ for the world. And my prayer is that God might raise up more like Betsy from among us here at Salt Company to carry this plan of salvation out into the world. Um, so God, would you do that? Would you please raise up more of us to be like the gentle pioneer? Convinced that our duty our response to the gospel is to offer ourselves in this humble obedience to God's call to carry his plan of salvation, that good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world for the sake of those who are around us. God, raise up many like Betsy Stockton from among us, please. I want to be more like her. Help me to be more like her.
It's in your name. Amen. Well, we're in week two of our series, Unexpected. We're looking at three unexpected people and three unexpected outcomes of conversations with Jesus. Now, last week, we looked at the story of the man who had leprosy, and this week, we're looking at the story of a guy called Levi. So let's head back to the first century in the near Middle East for you to understand where this guy's coming from as we approach him and Jesus in this story. So this man was born in the region of Galilee, modern-day Lebanon, and his parents named him Levi, presumably after his father or his grandfather, and life for him was simple, was predictable. Let's say you're Levi. It's not obvious to you that your family is poor just because it's all that you've ever known and it's always been enough. A few hungry nights felt just normal growing up in your community and in your household, but you always had what you needed by the end of the day. But as you grow older, you start to feel the effects of poverty more and more and more and more, and you start to understand why that is. You see, Years ago, the Romans had essentially colonized Israel. A part of the colonization had been installing tax collectors to knock on doors and demand whatever tax was levied that week by the rulers from afar. Now, what's worse is that you knew what tax collectors did. They charged that tax and then some to line their own pockets and pay themselves. You've seen it for years. You've seen it drain your father and mother as they exert a controlled chaos of trying to pay the tax collectors and feed the mouths of their children. They, they hold you close to remind you of the stories of how God has provided for your people and how we would continue to do so, and yet your stomach growls. The Romans got richer and your people got poorer. Well, all your people except for the tax collectors. See, the Romans didn't go door to door themselves. No, they, they hired locals to do that dirty work for them. So your neighbor would become your enemy the moment they came knocking, wearing the seal of Rome and a demand for payment of the tax. And they were considered the lowest of the low. No one more despised in your town than these betrayers. In the synagogues, people would pray. Priests would pray things like, I thank you, God, that I'm not a tax collector. As if it was the worst possible thing that could happen to them. The worst shame that could come on a house would be a son defecting to become one of these people betraying tax collectors. And yet when you see them, you feel an odd mix of emotions. You, you, you hate them because you were taught to and because they're financially oppressing you and robbing your family and your people. You're confused by them because they're also Jewish and they're also from this town. So why would they become this sort of betraying person? But you're also envious of them. You've gone to bed hungry while listening to the sounds of their extravagant parties going on down the street. Hatred, confusion, and envy, an, an odd mix, one that grows even more odd when one day one of the regional tax collectors comes up to you in the street, and before they can utter a word, you blurt out, I don't have any money. It's, just what you, it's your gut reaction to seeing someone walking down the road with the seal of Rome on the, and the man, the man smiles, and he and he puts his arm over your shoulder and he hands you a small bag of shekels, more than you've ever seen. And you look at him in shock as he says, son, I don't want to take, I want to give. This and more like it. No more hungry nights and no more dreary mornings. All you need to do is come with me and become a tax collector. Now, at this point, you're offered a choice between two reality-forming ideas. We've talked about this before, Saul Company. Every no is a yes and every yes is a no. So if you say no to the wealth and the comfort and the luxury of being a tax collector and you choose loyalty to your family and your people and your culture, then things will basically continue the way that they've been going. But if you say yes to the tax collector, and you then you'll say no to your family, your people, and your culture but your life will significantly change in ways that the man who's offering you this role knows it will. 
that thing that you've envied as you've looked at them will actually become your reality if you accept the idea that's being given to you by the tax collector. Now your stomach rumbles, answering for you before the words ever come out of your mouth. And for the dream of wealth, comfort, and luxury, you become a tax collector. You also lose your family and the respect of your people. You're not welcome at the synagogue anymore. You've lost all of this. And over time, you just become numb to what you've lost. So you sit in your booth at the main gate of the town or down by the docks and you tax your family and you tax your people and they despise you, but you got what you wanted. You got wealth and comfort. So over time, you just grow numb to it. And then you start to hear about this Jesus guy healing people with leprosy, talking like the Messiah would, like the savior of the world would, like someone who's, who's, who, who for so long you've known, there's someone that's coming. You know the stories. You know what your people have been hoping for. You know the promise of God from the third page of the Bible that, that the, the enemy of your soul might nip at the heel, but ultimately its head will be crushed by the one who will come from the, the woman that God has set aside. And that woman was Mary, and this guy is Jesus. And you're starting to see this is the one that we've been waiting for. And, and you've heard the story and you've heard about Jesus and even times he's come into your town and you've seen him walk by your booth and you've seen him walk down by the docks. You seem to like being around boats a lot and you're honestly, you're cold to it all. They have to pass you to enter the town, but you're, you're, you're numb to it. You've seen him walk by over and over and you've already formed your opinion about him and your numb and hardened heart. He's probably just like all the others. This high and mighty religious ruler, more about himself than about his people, all these things that are so unlike Jesus, but you're so callous by your life that you don't actually know how to think about someone who could actually help you be free. And that's when we crash into our story. This text in Luke chapter five, we have a tax collector who's chosen his path, full pockets and empty eyes, who's grown numb to anything that anyone who might come towards him with any hope could ever hope to offer until one day Jesus comes towards him. And I think as you see this story, there's at least five things worth noting in this story that should shape the way that we all follow Jesus. The way that we follow Jesus does not exist in a vacuum. There are different things that are influencing it at different points in times. And, and, and as we follow Jesus, we actually can lean into the story of God that leads us to Jesus. This story is recorded accurately by uh, Luke for the sake of helping people follow Jesus. We actually can lean into this story and find five things worth noting, five lessons from this unexpected encounter with Jesus that we need to pay attention to. If you're a Christian or if you'd call yourself one, the fourth and the fifth ones are massively important to the way that you live life on campus. All of them are good, but the fourth and fifth one, really important. So takeaway number one, number one, ideas matter. Ideas matter. Let's, let's move back into our story. One day, Jesus turns and he starts to come towards you, Levi, in your tax booth. Now, it's been years since a rabbi said anything kind to you. So what do you think this one's going to say? Is he going to mock you for the sake of the people watching him? Is he going to try to use you to build his crowd? Will he pray one of those? I thank God I'm not a tax collector prayers. Will you become the illustration and a parable where you're the butt of the joke? You start to toughen up again. Bring it on, Jesus. Whatever you have to say to me, I've heard it all before. Come through. That's what Levi expects to happen. But verse 27 shatters every expectation when, when we read, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
Jesus looks at Levi and he says, follow me. Don't miss what just happened right here. Please don't miss this. Jesus has just asked someone to follow him that everybody in the town absolutely hates. Hates them. The crowd that's following him, they don't like Levi. The disciples Jesus called so far, they don't like Levi. Jesus looks at him and says, you, follow me. We're right back to a reality-forming idea again, except this time it's Jesus Christ asking you to follow him. You say no and stay, and nothing changes in your life. You continue in your tax booth. You continue numb. You continue in this way of life that is destroying you from the inside, but you have no idea how to get out of it. You have no idea how to even admit that. Your life looks ideal on the outside, and yet you're crumbling internally. But if you say yes and go, then everything changes. This is the potency of ideas. Ideas matter. Ideas make claims to reality. The idea of being a tax collector had made a formative claim on the reality of Levi. He said, I want wealth and comfort, and he gave up everything for that idea. That idea had formed what social scientists call mental maps of his reality, or others might call it a worldview. It formed the way that he saw everything was all through the lens of being a tax collector. Money was a prize. People are tools. He saw himself as hated, and so he eventually grew numb. Ideas matter. They mattered then and they matter now. It's not so different from today, is it? Every idea placed in front of you presents a map of reality that resists, rests on a combination of three pillars. It's a combination of knowledge, what is the idea, belief, is the idea good, and trust, will that idea keep its promise? Knowledge, belief, and trust. Now, these are actually the same three pillars of what theologians call the foundations of faith. Whenever someone says they have faith in something, they are saying they have knowledge, belief, and trust in an idea, in an object, in a person, in something. Now, some people look at faith as a ridiculous thing, and that's because sometimes it's put in ridiculous context. Like, it makes no sense to say something like, you've got to trust me. Elvis is still alive. That's, that's an idea that's ridiculous. That idea is wrong. It's not good. It's untrustworthy. But what about this idea? Hey, you deserve to be happy. And let's face it, you haven't been happy for a long time. So, In fact, you feel so anxious about what's coming up after graduation that you forgot what happiness is even like. So what if you took this way to guaranteed success or at least just a guaranteed moment of, of happiness in relation to your life? Just burn the candle on both ends for four years. Say no to a few things like community, Jesus, friends, and the like, and just go after it and get what you want. That's an idea. It's a competing idea. So in a sense, every idea you choose is a choice rooted in faith. It's a choice rooted in your knowledge, belief, and trust in that idea. So the right question isn't, do you have faith? It's what do you have faith in? Because ideas matter. So what will Levi do? Or rather, what will Levi put his faith in? Verse 28. Leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. Levi got up and began to follow Jesus. This brings us to the second takeaway. Anyone can follow Jesus. Anyone can follow Jesus. This is an incredible moment. It's the irresistible grace of Jesus drawing Levi to himself. Levi, who has done nothing that should have caught the eye of Jesus to make him a follower. In fact, he has done the exact opposite of what should have made him a prime candidate to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but Jesus invites him to follow him anyways. Jesus is making a point that through Levi, that anybody can become his disciple. 
Anyone can choose to follow Jesus. Anyone can put their faith in Jesus, their knowledge, belief, and trust, and rest, and receive Jesus. Literally, anyone watching from the crowd would have seen this happen and said, well, if Levi can follow, then why not me? Exactly. Why not you? Perhaps the things that would keep you from following Jesus have more to do with how you see yourself and less to do with how Jesus sees you. You see, Jesus shatters that paradigm. When he says, you remember Levi, the tax collector? Yeah, he's with me now. Someone comes up to him and says, well, Jesus, I'd follow you, but, and he's like, no, no, no. Do you remember Levi, the tax collector? He follows me now, so why, why not you? Anyone can follow Jesus. If you're here tonight and you don't follow Jesus, I wanna invite you to ask the question, why? Why don't you follow Jesus? Jesus, whose father sent him to earth so that he might willingly take our sin from us and put it on himself on the cross. Jesus, who would make a way for sinners to be saved by God. Jesus, whose way is better than any other way as proved not only by scripture, but over and over again by modern social sciences. Jesus, who died for our sin while we were still sinners. Jesus, who rose from the dead in glory so we might have an assurance of everlasting life in him. Jesus, who was and who is and who forever more will be. Jesus, friend of sinners. Jesus, whose life, as you read it, is so compelling and it has to do with who he is as the son of God and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can come to, to him. Following Jesus is not about swimming yourself. It's not about trying to keep yourself afloat. It's about Jesus reaching down and saying, take my hand. He doesn't say swim harder. He says, take my hand. He reaches out towards you. What's stopping you from reaching back up towards him? He's made the first move. Your move is only and simply a response. What stopping you from following Jesus? Anyone can become a follower. And it won't cost much, just everything. Which brings us to our third takeaway. We leave everything behind. At least these are the words we see in verse 28 for Levi. These three words on the front end of the verse, leaving everything behind. Levi didn't tidy up his booth or take a little bit of coin for the road or wait for the right time to follow. He stood up and he followed. He hears, follow me, and he does it. Here's what I want to point out in Levi's life. For Levi, Jesus wasn't just a part of his life. Jesus wasn't a part of his life because Jesus isn't simply a part of anything. For him to be a part of something would be for his place in that thing to be too small. This simply doesn't make sense for Jesus, who goes by the title of Savior, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, the one who holds all things together and in whom all things hold their substance. To squeeze him into Levi's life and just become a part of it? To squeeze himself into your life and just become a part of it? It's not a part of anything. Like imagine your life as a series of books that describes parts of you. One is sports, one book is school, one book is sexuality, one book is family, and so on. Jesus isn't just another book on the shelf. He's not just a part of the books on your shelf. Jesus is the shelf that holds all the books together. He's not just a part of it. It's all a part of him. You could say it like this. Jesus didn't follow Levi. Levi followed Jesus. There was no confusion about who was following who? All this to say, Levi left the trajectory that his life was on to step into the new way of following Jesus. Jesus wasn't simply a part of his life. It was now that Levi got to be a part of Jesus. You see that incredible moment. Levi follows Jesus. And what follows next gives us our fourth 
takeaway. These fourth and fifth ones I said are really important. Now, those first three, really beautiful, really good. Ideas matter. Anyone can follow Jesus. We leave everything behind. It's not like Jesus is just some part of us. It's that we get to be a part of him. And what, resp- what comes of that naturally is this fourth takeaway. Invitation is natural. Look at this in verse 29. Levi throws a party to honor Jesus and invites his tax collector friends. This is so wild. Like being a disciple of Jesus along for the ride, would, this would have been like such a nuts experience. Here's all the people that for so long I've been taught to stay away from and they're coming to Jesus? Well, well yeah. Jesus has changed Levi's life. So it only makes sense to Levi that if good news could come for him from Jesus, then it could also come to his friends. Perhaps the good news of Jesus came to Levi, not just for Levi, but on its way to somebody else, on its way to his tax collector friends, on its way to his fraternity, on its way to his dorm, on its way to his team, on its way to his classmates, on its way to the people who were around him. So he invites them to get to be around Jesus. For Levi, inviting his friends to meet Jesus was just the next logical step in being a follower of Jesus. This wasn't this special big thing. He's just like, yeah, if Jesus came for me, why wouldn't he come for you? What's incredible is that they're all, as they gather for the center, they're inviting Jesus to bring all that he is to them. They're not asking for just a part of Jesus. They're not asking for the bits of Jesus that they like. Table fellowship, which this, this gathering around a table for a party, for a dinner together, was an invitation for the whole person to bring their whole life to the table. This is similar to what's above, where Levi has left everything. The tax collectors are now gathering around Jesus, wanting everything that he has and that he is, knowing that it will mean that he'll ask them to repent of their way and change their practice. Why? Because what they're doing is morally wrong. Like, like they know Jesus is going to say, you, you need to abandon being a tax collector. You need to, to stop being an unjust tax collector. You need to stop lining your own pockets by defrauding the people who are around you. They know he's going to say it's not inappropriate of Jesus to ask them to repent and change their ways because he actually has a better way in store for them. It would be more inappropriate for Jesus to say nothing at all. His presence is evidence that they actually believe that his way is better than theirs and they want to learn about it. It's incredible and revealing. When you invite someone to meet Jesus or when you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to find that there are some things in your life that do not align with him. These things are called sin. One of my favorite definitions of sin comes from Ignatius of Loyola when he says that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. Sin, then, is actually looking at Jesus and saying, I know better than you what is best for me. Now, let's go back. That's an idea. And ideas matter. So what if that idea is wrong? What if you don't know better than Jesus what is best for you? What if the way of God revealed through the practice and life of Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ actually leads to your deepest happiness? What if the the way lined out in scripture for us to follow as we follow Jesus is actually the way to deepest happiness for men and women, regardless of where they're at in their life, where they're from, regardless of anything, what if it is actually the way to the deepest degree of happiness? What if we don't know better than Jesus what's best for us? That's the experience of these tax collectors. 
They've been going one way, Levi had been going one way, and then Jesus calls Levi to follow him. So these other tax collectors are coming to Jesus and saying, teach us how to follow your way. Now this is possible because anyone can follow Jesus. They could all repent of their sin and follow Jesus. Now for them to follow the way of Jesus will mean, you guessed it, we're walking through our takeaways, they'll have to leave some things behind. For instance, the injustice that came along with being a tax collector. Being a tax collector was an idea that appealed to their capacity for happiness through a deceptive and destructive path, but being a follower of Jesus was a means by which they would learn a true and deeper happiness in the way, words, and works of Jesus Christ by trusting in him as Savior and then following him as Lord. By the way, this is universally true. Jesus and his way is better than any other way. Greater peace, greater joy, deep assurance, hope for the future in eternity. This is what the way of Jesus offers. This is what Levi is inviting his friends to encounter. An unexpected conversation leads to an unexpected party as Jesus is surrounded by eating with and teaching tax collectors. So, Je so Levi throws a party for Jesus and invites his friends to meet him. Food is served, wine is poured, the house is full of joy, but there's some who are not so happy. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? Now, it's worth noting that not all the scribes and the Pharisees were out to get Jesus, but a contingency of them certainly were. And these are trying to essentially make the disciples doubt Jesus. They're not talking to Jesus when they say this. They're talking to his disciples or complaining to his disciples. Before the disciples even have a chance to stumble over their words to explain themselves, I can almost see Jesus surrounded by a table with his new tax collector friends telling them about the forgiveness that was available to them through God and what the Messiah was going to do. And he looks up for a moment across the table and shouts to the Pharisees and says verses 31 through 32. And Jesus replies to them, hey, uh, it's not those who are healthy that need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then he goes back to eating. <laughs> this is our fifth takeaway. That we would be like Jesus and eat with those who others push away. What's funny is that I bet that no one at the table even batted an eye when Jesus said that. They knew they were wrong in what they were doing. They knew what they had faith in, this idea of being a tax collector. It was giving them short-term wealth and comfort, but in the long term, it was eroding their life and their soul. They were sinners separated from God, and Jesus was talking about a way for them to be forgiven, to leave this life behind and follow after him. And it was all taking place around a table. I wonder what your table looks like. I wonder, Salt Company, if what God wants for our tables to look like is a little less Christian bubble and a little more Levi throws a party. Like, would it be okay if Levi showed up at your connection group? That it looked a little, like, like at that point, if Levi shows up at the connection group and brings his friends, like you can't talk about super Laparianism, you can't talk about these deep theological topics for a little bit because the moods changed, vibes switched up. Because Levi and his tax collector friends are there and they're like, hey, can you just tell us who Jesus is and how we can follow him? That's what they want to know from him. What if our tables looked a little less insider and a little more outward facing? I wonder what it would be like to build relationships that matter around a table like that, how it would shape and form you as you love and you follow Jesus, as you be like Jesus and eat with those that others often push away. See, Jesus moves towards the tax collectors at the table and he gives them the best news they'd ever heard. He does this by saying that he is the cure and he is the change. He's the cure. 
He makes it clear that he would bring health where they were sick, that they were sick with sin, unable to heal themselves. So Jesus would be their good physician and their substitute. He would take their sickness and sin on himself so that they could have a healthy relationship with God, a restored whole relationship with God. That's this idea of health, wholeness, this whole relationship with God, not based on what they did, not based on them swimming harder, but based on the fact that Jesus reached in and pulled them out. He's the cure right there in the middle of the house. Jesus is the good doctor dealing hope over a dining room table to those desperately in need of it. He's the cure and he's the change. He's come to call sinners to repentance. For them, repentance, which means changing your mind and turning to go a new way with your life, would be costly. For these men, it might mean getting new jobs. It might mean repenting and repaying what they stole. There's precedent for that in the Bible with the story of Zacchaeus. But to those who would choose to repent, it was worth it because it would mean that they were with Jesus. It was not an easy believism. This was not a keep swindling people and oppressing people and follow me. Jesus was setting himself up as the new way, as the better way, as the only way. He's saying, you repent of the old and you follow me. The men that understood that they were sinners are looking to Jesus as their Lord and Savior are being healed by Jesus. They repent and come to him. And all the while, the religious look on and judge him and his disciples for it. And as I've been thinking about this text, I wondered which of these two you think were in more danger. The tax collector who knows that they're sick and knows that they need Jesus. So they invite him into their house and they get around him and try to listen to him, try to learn. And I say, how can I be forgiven? How can I follow your way? What will it cost? What will it take? I know that Jesus, I need you. Is that person in more danger? Or the person that looks in and says, what are you doing? While they themselves don't know how badly they need what's being offered by Jesus. You see, one says, I need Jesus. The other questions him in his ways. One leans on God's grace through Jesus. The other leans on their works and their ways. Well, one throws a party for others to meet Jesus. The other questions why you hang out with sinners and those people. Jesus calls one of those groups to follow him and rebukes the other with his response to their question. Without Jesus, both of them are in danger, but only one comes to him. And Jesus says to that person, the one who comes to him, that he is the cure and he is the change. So he sits with them. The Pharisees judged him. Scribes criti criticized. Jesus didn't care. He came for those who were sick. He came to be the cure and the change for those men, for all of humanity that they desperately needed. He would be the good news that through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus would live the perfect life that you and I could never live around tables like this, inviting men to follow him, inviting women to follow him as the Lord and as the Savior. But he would get up on the cross and he would die. It would be our sin that put him there, but it would be his love for us that would keep us there. His sin was lifted off our shoulders and put onto him and his right standing, his perfection, his wholeness, his righteousness is put onto us. He, as the good physician, literally takes our place so he can take our sin. And he dies and he leaves sin, death, and hell in the grave. And he rises victoriously three days later so that we might know what's true of Jesus will one day be true of us. That is, he has made a way for us to enter into everlasting life, that he himself, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him because we have trusted in his death 
death, in his life, death, burial, and his resurrection, what he has accomplished for us to be able to be saved, to follow after him, that Jesus has done this for us so that we are justified. And it is just as if I had never sinned because of what Christ has done. And then he shapes us, informs us as we follow after him like these tax collectors would. We, we hear the words of Jesus that say, follow, follow me. He's the cure and he's the change that every single person listening to this needed and needs, including Levi. Now, you may hear the story and think, I've never heard of Levi before. But you definitely have. You just might not have known him by this name. You see, Levi went by another name. Levi was also known by the name Matthew. This is not uncommon to have a Hebraic name and a Grecian name, specifically in a culture where you have Israel, uh, the earth, where you, you have this, this region uh, being colonized by, by Rome. You have the, these, these like plurality uh, of experiences that are all coming together. So he's, he's known as Levi, the tax collector here, but in other places, he's known as Matthew. Matthew the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, through whom the Spirit of God would inspire a biography of the life of Jesus that we know as the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, who would preach the Gospel in Judea and plant churches. Matthew, who the tradition of the church tells us would bring the Gospel down into Ethiopia as an apostle to that nation. And, and you got to understand, Jesus looked into the tax booth on that day, and he saw in that booth a man that nobody liked. And Jesus also looked in, and he saw all of that inside of Matthew. He saw the gospel he'd write, the churches he'd plant, the people he'd meet, and the nation that he'd bring the, the gospel down to according to tradition. And he said to that man, follow me. So to close, I wonder what Jesus sees when he looks in at you. In everything that you're in right now, everything that makes it difficult for you to think that God could do anything in or through you, everything that would make you in your mind an unlikely candidate to be loved by God or to do anything along with him for the sake of those around you, perhaps Jesus looks into your tax booth and the place that you're in and he sees more than you could possibly imagine. I also wonder what you see when you look around the people at your table in your connection group, your friends, your community? What if you saw them the same way that Jesus saw Levi? What would happen if you saw them through the eyes of Jesus? What could God do through them? What, what might God do through you? So I want you to take a moment, pause to respond. Maybe you're listening to this right now and you're the tax collector. You know you've put your faith in something that's destroying you. There's no life there, no light there, no joy there, no hope there. You are in the path and the way of sin. And Jesus' two words echo across eternity this evening for you to hear just as clearly as Levi did as he looks at you and he says, follow me. Jesus is inviting you to follow him. Tonight, you could say yes, repent of your sin and come to Jesus, your Lord and Savior, the cure and the change, your good physician. Maybe tonight you're the scribe, the Pharisee. You got more judgment in your heart. You got problems with the message or worship or whatever, how we gather. I don't care, frankly, if you have a problem with Salt Company because I'm not preaching about the good news of Salt Company. I want you to see Jesus 
through the hardened exterior of your life, inviting you to come and sit at a table with him, to be with him, to rest in him, to quit having your faith and your ability to figure everything out and as such judging everyone around you and actually put down your guard for a moment and come to Jesus. Perhaps you're here and you've been hurt by someone who was a Pharisee or a scribe. Like you were trying to follow Jesus, but someone kept being that doubting, questioning voice in your ear. Oh, well, you'll never. Oh, well, you couldn't. Oh, well, how could you? If that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were treated that way. I'm honored you choose to get in, in a gathering like this tonight. I can imagine it's very difficult for you in some ways. My prayer for you is that you would see the kindness of Jesus towards you through this text. He's not the one pushing you away. He's the one inviting you to come into the house and to be with him. And maybe even following Jesus for a while, but even as I've been teaching this, you realize there are still things that you need to leave behind. My prayer is that you would ask God to help you for him to show you that he's better and with gentleness and strength over time, he will. So here's my invitation to you as we close. I wanna invite you to take some time. This podcast is gonna end here in a second. It's gonna be done. Take some time and in light of all this, go be with God. Go take a moment, 30 seconds, two minutes, 30 minutes and out, whatever you need to just go pray and to respond. So God, would you bless the teaching of your word? Would you bless the hearing of it? Spirit of God, would you move? Spirit of God, would you illuminate what the response needs to be? To come to you and put the trust in you, to find healing in you, to leave something behind, to invite other people around their table, whatever it might look like. Jesus, we ask that you do it. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. It's in your name. Amen.